white supremacy is so pernicious, it is so pervasive that I feel comfortable in saying that it is responsible for virtually every ill that we see within our communities. And you may not be able to directly see and understand the connection, but it's there. You'll find it embedded in every system there is. It's the foundation of governmental policies that disadvantage us. It lives rent-free in policing systems that target us. And most dangerously, it has wormed its way like a parasite into the psyche of black America. So what do you do when the killer is inside the house? When you begin to internalize that covert anti-black rhetoric, how do you defend yourself from the threat within? I'm Jay from Push Black, and today on Black History Year, we're talking about the psychological effects of white supremacy. Joining us today is Dr. Kevin Coakley, a scholar, a researcher, and a black psychologist. That is, he studies a field of psychology that specifically addresses the unique psychology of black people. Much of his work centers on the development of black identity and self-concepts, ideas he extensively explores in his book, The Myth of Black Anti-Intellectualism. Through the work of Dr. Coakley and other black psychologists, one thing is clear. Unshackling the mind and healing the wounds of white supremacy is possible. You just have to go deep within. Dr. Coakley, what does black liberation mean to you? Black liberation to me, and I, and I say this from the vantage point of, of a black psychologist and, and as an African-centered black psychologist, black liberation, simply put, is black people having consciousness that has been freed from Eurocentric colonization. So what I mean by that is, as black folks, as, as African people, we have been socialized to think in ways that undermine who we are as a people. And part of it is because we have not appreciated what it means to be Black, what it means to be African, and we have adopted some ways and mindsets that really are not healthy for our people. And so for me, Black liberation from a, from a psychological vantage point means the unshackling of the mind and shedding and ridding ourselves of those harmful and really sort of anti-Black, anti-African ways of thinking. So when you say unshackling the mind, how does your work contribute to that? So, you know, I follow in the huge footsteps of Black psychologists, that, you know, Wade Nobles, you know, the person who was my direct mentor, or as we refer to in Black psychology, Jagna, Asa Hilliard, Naeem Akbar. What I've done as a Black psychologist is, one, try to continue to sort of validate that there is such a thing as as a black psychology. That might sound really basic and simple, but you would be surprised to hear how many people even question the existence of a black psychology. You know, this idea that we have our own internal, intrinsic, and cultural ways of being and thinking and doing things that we need to understand and that we need to really sort of validate and to sort of embrace. So what I've done in my work 
is continue the legacy, particularly of, of Dr. Asa Hilliard. Dr. Hilliard, as I'm sure you know, was a tireless defender of black students. He was an educational psychologist, an Egyptologist. He was someone that always defended black children and black students as being brilliant, as being capable, and as really needing our belief in them. My work has, in many ways, just been a reflection of and an extension of his lifelong work. And so much of my work has looked at issues of identity, understanding the importance and the role of identity for Black students and how it shapes and informs their approach towards education. My work has challenged the idea that Black students don't value school and don't value education. So when I wrote my book, The Myth of Black Anti-Intellectualism, it was really to disrupt this narrative out there that Black people and Black students in particular do not value school. And one, the empirical evidence is overwhelmingly against that that idea. But historically, and, and what I sort of say in the book is, is that historically, that's a problematic narrative to, to say that Black people don't value school. When you think about all the things that, that people did to better our lives and to sort of sacrifice for the kids and all the things that we've been through historically as a people to try to fight to make sure that our kids had an education that was worthy of them, that was not reflective of, you know, sort of the biases and the sort of lack of resources that tend to sort of be a part of our educational experiences. And so for me, I think that what my biggest contribution or one of my biggest contributions has been to continue Dr. Asa Hilliard's work of being a tireless defender of Black students, by extension, the Black culture, and to sort of you know make the case that we as a people do very much value school, we very much value education, but it just can't be any education. We will reject, understandably so, those experiences that are mired in Eurocentric thought that devalue our historical reality and that devalue and minimize the contributions that we have made to the flow of history. If we aren't getting the type of education that will promote Black liberation, then you shouldn't be surprised if you see some attitudes that question the necessity of this Eurocentric education. I'm interested, just to lay the groundwork for folks, if you could sum up, in general, Black psychology, how it differs from the mainstream psychology. I know you've touched on this, but if you could sum it up. And I know you also mentioned that you were an African-centered psychologist. Could you describe what that means? And is that different than just Black psychology? If we think about the individual who we affectionately refer to as the father of Black psychology, Dr. Joseph White, he wrote an article that, you know, many, many years ago called Toward a Black Psychology. And this was an article that was published in not a journal, not an academic journal, but it was published in Ebony Magazine. And some people found that to be strange. Why would you publish something that is clearly academic in nature and not an academic journal, but this sort of trade magazine? And he explained it very simply as this. He said that he was writing for the people. He was trying to reach the people and not other sort of scholars or researchers or academics. And the best way to reach the masses was to sort of, you know, write something that was going to be in an outlet that he knew would reach the people. And and certainly at that time, it, it may be less the case now, but certainly at that time, that was Ebony Magazine. You would have been hard pressed to have gone to any black home and not found an Ebony Magazine on someone's coffee table. And so he wrote this article, Toward a Black Psychology, where he laid out his case, his argument for why there is, in fact, an existence of Black psychology. And it's important to understand that Black psychology is not simply 
or is not even the darker side of psychology, if you will. It is not simply sort of your sense of psychology and blackface. No, black psychology is within itself a legitimate understanding and disciplinary approach towards understanding the psychology of black people. And what's important to know is that black psychology offers us ways of understanding black behaviors and black attitudes black values and black consciousness and more sort of traditional, so-called traditional mainstream or Eurocentric psychology does not offer us. And if I could just offer maybe just a, a couple of examples to sort of drive home the point. So you want to understand black people. You want to understand what makes us tick and understand sort of get, get inside of our psyche. There needs to be constructs is what we sort of refer to them. There needs to be psychological constructs that are really specific to the black experience. One of the most common ones, and it actually it ties into what's going on today. There's a construct that came out of black psychology called cultural mistrust. What is cultural mistrust? Cultural mistrust is basically, you know, this idea that there is a profound and deep and pervasive mistrust of white institutions, of white authority figures, of things that are, you know, really part of white culture. And the construct came about because essentially black people were, were being pathologized. You know, white psychologists characterize us as being paranoid. You know, you all are so paranoid. You always think that someone is out to get you. You have all of these sort of misgivings about white people or whatever. And so black psychologists had to say, look, we're not in, in the clinical sense, paranoid, because when you when you say paranoid in a clinical sense, you're, you're thinking about paranoid schizophrenia. You're thinking about people who have an unreasonable anxiety around, you know, different issues. And black psychologists said, look, black people have a very good reason to be culturally mistrustful of white people and of white institutions, because when we haven't been that way we see where that has gotten us. And history has taught us that in order to protect ourselves, we have to understandably be mistrustful when it comes to sort of white people. And it's important today, just again, as, as an example, we're having discussions about the vaccine, right? And you're seeing a lot of articles and op-eds and in interviews being put out there about why black people in particular are very hesitant to take the COVID-19 vaccine. And, you know, I wrote something about this and other people have talked about it where one of the main psychological reasons that Black people are very hesitant to take the vaccine is this idea of cultural mistrust. And again, cultural mistrust does not come from a Eurocentric psychology, but, but comes from a Black psychology. And what's so interesting, what's so powerful about this is that cultural mistrust, it goes well beyond education. Because if you ask Black folks, you know, about whether they're going to take the COVID-19 vaccine, it doesn't matter whether they have no degree doesn't matter whether they have a college degree. In some cases, it doesn't even matter whether they have advanced degrees. That you have seen that there have been many black people who will say, no, I'm not going to do it. And when you ask them why, they will point to Tuskegee. They will point to the years that there have been experimentation done on black bodies. They will point to all the things that have happened to black people that have resulted in us being profoundly mistrustful of the medical establishment. So what black psychology does is it helps us to understand the psychology of black people in non-pathological terms, something that was not given to us by a more Eurocentric psychological approach. And when you say African-centered, how does that relate? So an African-centered psychological approach is a bit different from a black psychology approach in that it sort of recognizes our primary identities as being African people and that it centers our experiences as African people that then sort of informs how we understand ourselves and how we understand the world around us. And really it differs. I mean, black psychology and African psychology, certainly they are 
they're linked, they're related, but but they do somewhat different. So in a so for example, a, a black psychology approach does not necessarily privilege or embrace necessarily the sort of idea that that we are African people and that being an African person, it results in us sort of, you know, having a certain worldview. It results in there sort of being certain ways of being that should be congruent with being African. That That's not sort of what a black psychology perspective sort of promotes. And an African psychology perspective very much sort of understands that when you see and understand yourself to be of African, in, in more than just African descent, but really embracing saying, I am African. It doesn't matter whether I'm, you know, you know, African in the Americas or, you know, African in Europe or African in some other part of the world, that fundamentally we are African people. And that as African people, we are fundamentally connected and that there is a shared worldview. We may have somewhat different experiences because of our different geographical spaces, but that there is this sort of shared understanding of what it means to be African. What are those values that, that sort of bind us across time and space? And so an African psychology perspective fundamentally sort of promotes that. And that's certainly something that I believe in philosophically, ideologically, and intellectually. Much of my research is, is rooted in a black psychology perspective. I've written um, intellectually about African psychology. I have found it easier just in terms of being in the academy because I, I tend to sort of do empirical work. It's easier to sort of do that work within the black psychology tradition. But I am very much sort of in sync and sympathetic to the African psychology perspective. So I definitely want to dig in to some of the psychological implications of white supremacy. And to me, it seems that one obvious thing is like the fact that so many of us have a hard time even saying that we're African is one of those implications. What are your opinions on us and our identity in that regard? Well, I mean, this has been the result of years and years of what Bobby Wright, uh, black psychologist, you know, referred to as menticide. I mean, it has been a, a systematic attempt to rob us of our identity, to de-Africanize us. My late mentor, Jagner, Dr. Asa Hillier, this was something that he talked about a lot. And there was a, a pamphlet, a book that was written that captured something that he said in, in the midst of a conversation that he was having with some other African-centered intellectuals. And he basically, you know, uttered the words, to be African or not to be. You know, in some ways, it's a play on words of, you know, that Shakespearean quote to be or not to be. But he he basically said, you know, we are either going to be African or we're not going to be. I mean, we for all intents and purposes, we don't exist if we don't acknowledge our Africanness, our African humanity. But for people who deny that, you know, when I teach my undergraduate students and I teach a class called the Psychology of the African-American Experience, you know, I, I give them this example. I said, you know, when you when you look at other groups of people. And, you know, you start talking about issues of identity and culture. Let's take Mexican-Americans, for example. So Mexican-Americans, you know, they recognize and understand themselves to be Mexicans. If you take a Mexican-American and if you say, if you were to call them sort of Mexican, they're not going to take umbrage of that. They're not going to say, no, I'm not Mexican. I'm Mexican-American. Because they fundamentally understand that even though they may be in this American sort of geographical context, that they are Mexican. Um, same thing with Asian Americans, you know, Asian Americans can be, you know, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans. But if you refer to them as Asian, they're not going to sort of get upset and say, no, I'm not Asian. I am, you know. But then you get to black folks. And if you call a black person an African, then suddenly those are fighting words that, you know, now you're, you've suddenly insulted them. And so what is that about? Because you don't see that 
in any other group of people. And that's because, again, the mental side that Bobby Wright talked about, the ways in which Africa and the word African, we have been socialized to be ashamed of that connection. We have been socialized to sort of think of Africa as this sort of primitive, barbaric, dark continent, if you will. And again, when I think about some of the students that I've taught over the many years, when I give them that example, you know, I'll have students who say, well, Dr. Coakley, I ain't Africa. I've never been to Africa. I was born in Dallas, Texas. You know, so they say that somewhat jokingly, but there's something deeper going on there because we are the only group of people that fight like hell to deny our ancestry, our African ancestry. And again, that's the result of years and years and years of, of these messages that have attempted to de-Africanize us and that have been really that's a part of the evil genius of white supremacy. So we have this situation where we have an identity issue and a lot of your work deals with racial identity. So can you just sort of lay out some of your key findings or work in that regard as they relate to what we're talking about? I've done a couple of different things. I mean, my empirical work has really sought to better understand the ways in which we try to conceptualize and to sort of measure racial identity. But essentially, I have been influenced by the work of, of William Cross. You might be familiar with William Cross, a psychologist who came up with this theory called psychology of nigrescence that he developed in late 60s, early 70s. And essentially, it was the psychology the psychological process of becoming black. What he meant by that was during the 70s, when he was a graduate student, he observed, and this was this would have been during the height of you know civil rights movement, black power movement, there was a diversity of approaches that black people had about whether they were going to get involved in in the movement or, or the movements or not. Some black folks who were activists and who were, you know, down for the you know fight. There were others who stayed on the sideline. And as he sort of made these observations, he created this theory, this nagrescence theory that he believed captured the psychology of sort of becoming this sort of black person. And if I can just sort of just describe it very, very quickly, because, you know, you start up in a space where you sort of have internalized these anti-black, pro-white viewpoints. So in other words, because of all the, you know, some of the things we've sort of talked about, you have not really embraced being black and you have internalized those sort of negative stereotypes about being black and you have more of an, a white orientation. And so Dr. Krauss said that he he noted quite a bit of that sort of attitude during the 60s. But then he said that something happens that sort of shakes you at your core and causes you to challenge those beliefs. And what he observed was when, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, that really, really shook black people to their core, particularly those black people who were on the sidelines and who weren't sort of, you know, really sort of part of any sort of um, social justice movements. Because for them, it was simply if... Someone like Martin Luther King, given his stature and given what he was trying to do, if they could take him out, what do you think they could do to someone like me? And so then that ended up resulting in them going to what Cross described as this sort of immersion of blackness, where this is where you saw black people, you know, suddenly, you know, suddenly become very much sort of activists. They were, you know, becoming radicalized, if you will, you know, wearing at that time, you know, started to wear, you know, dashikis, power to the people, all of that. And he said that part of that also involved a very powerful anti-white attitude that for them, they internalized that to be sort of pro-black meant de facto that you had to be anti-white. Dr. Cross happened to believe that that ultimately was not the healthiest place to be for black people, that, that our black identities should never be dependent upon being anti-anyone, anti-white, anti-anyone. And so he believed that was not the optimal state of being for, for black people. 
So then he observed that for some black people, they sort of moved out of this, what he called emergent state, and they began to emerge out of that intense state of pro-blackness, anti-whiteness, into what he called this sort of internalized state of blackness, where they had a sense of black identity that was not dependent upon being anti-white or being anti-any other group. And then he said that the last stage of this sort of identity transformation was what he called sort of the internalization commitment. And these are the people who now had a healthy, positive sense of their blackness, and they coupled that with now activism. I am not just going to sit on the sideline and not be involved in movements that, you know, sort of are for our liberation. But that model has been really fundamental to the way that I have understood Black identity and and how it has morphed over the years. Now, that being said, I, I should note that that's there have been some, you know, African-centered psychologists who have been critical of that model. So, so for example, you have Kobe Cambone, formerly known as Joseph Baldwin. He, in critiquing the model, you know, sort of made the you know observation, look, what William Cross is saying is unhealthy for Black people, this sort of being very sort of pro-Black, anti-white, you know, Cambone would say, that's the way we need to be. We, we can't afford as a people to trust white people under any circumstances. And as soon as we start trusting them, then as soon as we drop our guard, that's when we die. That's when they get us. So you had some African-centered psychologists like Kobe Cambon who criticized the model because they said, you, you got it all, all wrong, my brother. What you have posited as being not the ideal place for black people to be, I believe that that's where we should be in order to promote black liberation. So these are some of the discourses that have taken place within black psychology, within African psychology that have been fascinating and that I've taught about, you know, over the years. I recall reading about Cross's model fairly recently within the past couple of years, and it okay. spoke to me for sure from my experience and this, the people around me and going after that encounter, which way are you going to go? You know, Paul Mooney describes that encounter, I think, as the N-word wake-up call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the reason that model is so powerful is that so many people can look at it and see themselves in the model at various points. And in fact, the model has been adopted by, by other groups. It's been adopted by women. And you can almost look at it as anyone who's part of a group that has been marginalized and disenfranchised. They go through a process where they sort of move from that sort of very sort of anti-self viewpoint to, you know, being radicalized and to being sort of anti their oppressor and to getting to a point where they now are not anti their oppressor. They are more pro themselves. Like being pro you fill in the blank does not mean that I'm anti you can fill in the blank. So so the so the model has really had a lot of popularity for groups outside of black folks. One of the things that has been said, and again this was said by by Dr. Cambone, he took issue with Cross's notion that black people have to go to a stage where they are anti-black and pro-white. And what Cambone would argue is he was like, look, I grew up in a predominantly black community. I attended predominantly black schools. My whole existence was really surrounded by black people. And he argued that he never went through this phase of being sort of anti-black and pro-white. He says, because that white people weren't around. Mm. So there was, there was no reason for me and people in my, in my community to be pro-white because we were we didn't live with, we didn't socialize with, we didn't interact with white people. And so he criticized that part of the model as well, because he said, that's not necessarily reflective of the experiences of many black people. These, these are really fascinating debates that I think are very important debates that we, that we have within black psychology taking it back to African-centered psychology and black psychology, is there work being done with 
clinical psychologist. Like I can imagine a world where black folks can walk into someone's office for therapy and we get some kind of intentional treatment for these specific issues we have. What type of work is done around that? So that's a really good question. So you do have, I would say particularly in the case of some African-centered clinicians, they approach their clinical work, I think, a little bit differently than, say, you know, black clinicians. So, so, so someone who is a black psychologist who has sort of a black psychologist orientation, so they've been trained in mainstream Eurocentric psychology, but they are very sort of sensitive to the black experience. They still fundamentally are, are sort of trained using the techniques that, frankly, were formed by the experiences of white people. And they might sort of have a certain racial sensitivity that you know, helps them sort of be more responsive to working with black people, but they still fundamentally are trained within this sort of Eurocentric paradigm. And African-centered therapists, you know, really, I think, just challenges the whole foundation in many ways of what clinical practice might look like. And, you know, and not, not to sort of say that this is the case for all of them, but I am certainly aware that there are some African-centered practitioners who would be more likely to, to use therapeutic modalities and approaches that Certainly, you would not see in any sort of mainstream psychological training that might, you know, involve tapping into the realm of spirit, for example, in ways that would make, I think, some mainstream psychologists very uncomfortable. I'll give you an example. This is somewhat of a humorous example, but I think it taps into something very real. So when I teach my psychology to African-American experience class, on one of the first days of class, I will give them this example. I'll say to my students, let's say that you were planning to fly somewhere and you bought a ticket. And your grandmother says to you, baby, don't get on that plane. And you're like, why me, ma? Why grandma? Whatever, you know, your term of endearment is. And she tells you, because I had a vision. I had a dream. Something bad is going to happen. Don't don't get on that plane. So then I'll ask my students, what are you going to do? And it is a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Now, keep in mind, in my class, it's it's certainly predominantly, in some cases, overwhelmingly Black, but but we do have a sprinkling of, of some white folks and some Latinx people and others. And so it's really interesting hearing my students respond. So I'll have some students who say, well, I'm not getting on that plane. I'm like, well, why aren't you getting on the plane? And they're like, look, when my Mima, when when she has visions, that's not something you play with. Like, that's real. So I'll have to eat that ticket. And then I'll have other students who will be like, you know, I respect and love my grandma, but no, nah, I've already paid the ticket. And and virtually all of my white students, I mean, I, I can't recall a single white student who's ever said, I'm not getting on that plane. Every one of them is like, mm, I'm getting on that plane. I bought the ticket. I'm getting on the plane. And so I always I use that as an example to sort of highlight the difference between sort of an African psychology approach and a more Eurocentric or, or even a black psychology approach, but particularly a non-African approach, because we talk about the realm of spirit and an African-centered clinician is adept and comfortable at addressing and dealing with spirit and the role that spirit plays in the lives of people of African descent. And, and we differentiate spirit from religion. We're not talking about religiosity, although certainly they can, you know, sort of overlap. But we're talking about spirit distinctly and the role that spirit plays and how it, it informs our lived experiences. And so that's probably the best example of, of how an African-centered psychology approach would really, really differ. And some of the things that they might do with their clients would be vastly different than you would see from a more traditional approach. We want to make sure we're giving useful information to the people as far as just day-to-day -day mental health as it relates to 
our community. I think the term white supremacy has been more in the news uh, past several years, and I'm glad about that. More people are getting aware of these terms. But I'm interested from your perspective and your opinion, speak more on how white supremacy has impacted the mental health of our community. I think the best way for me to answer that question is to just give some very concrete examples. So Dr. Campbell talked about something that he calls cultural misorientation. And this idea that there are certain ways of being that as Black people, as African people, that we should be and that there are certain behaviors and practices that undermine who we are, that go against our culture. And all of this is sort of informed by impacted by white supremacy. I'll give some very, very basic examples. From our attitudes around aesthetics, right? So, and you and you really sort of see this when you when you start to talk to people about, you know, issues of colorism, for example, and what people would sort of present innocently as just sort of choices, you know, preferences. I don't like dark-skinned women, and I prefer light skin. You know, I like those light eyes. I like that straight hair. All, all those sort of sort of aesthetics are really linked to this sort of system of white supremacy. And why it's important is that it is profoundly damaging to the self-concepts of our people. You know, think about the messages that our kids receive from the people who say that they love them. I can tell you the stories that I've heard from, especially from Black females. I mean, it, it happens with Black males as, as well, but especially from Black females. And the stories that they've heard when they are when they are darker skinned and the comments that, that's made by their parents, by by their grandparents, that are maybe made in jest, unthoughtfully, not, not realizing, you know, the damage that it has on their kids. Issues of sort of like hair, you know, asking people, you know, why they have the attitudes that they have around sort of like natural hair versus straight hair. Like, so the aesthetics, sort of piece is, is, is a real obvious manifestation of sort of the impact of white supremacy because it has, really, it, it has messed us up. And I can think of, you know, sort of the comments that I heard my parents, and my mom is from Mississippi, you know, she's dark skinned, but I can think about comments that, that were made in my household, you know, the jokes that are made about people who are darker skinned and my family laughing at them and, and not even realizing how harmful that is. That's, a real obvious example and manifestation of the power and the danger of, of white supremacy. What white supremacy does is white people don't even have to be involved, right? So we're not talking about like white people coming and, and, and doing things to us. We're talking about, I'm talking about what we do to ourselves that don't involve ostensibly the presence of white people, but the internalization of Eurocentric aesthetics that we don't question. So that is just one example. Or some of the attitudes that we might have about our community. So why is it that, you know, we are so critical of Black-owned businesses? Why is it that, you know, we can go and get mistreated by white folks or other racial or ethnic groups and we take it, we tolerate it, but let us get what we perceive to be mistreated or not the best service from a Black-owned business owner and, and we are suddenly incredibly unforgiving and we don't realize how we are also operating in service of white supremacy because what we accept and take from white people and others, we won't take and accept with our own. And so there are all these different ways that, that white supremacy operates its sort of mission of, of really serving to divide us in ways that we just are completely oblivious to. That makes me think of a couple quotes. One, it's dangerous to quote 
Kanye these days, but he, uh, <laughs> he, back in the day, he said they made us hate ourselves and love their wealth. And I think that can be applied to, you know, everything, yeah. not even just wealth. But obviously, we look at ourselves a certain way and we view other folks uh, a certain way. And I think that's intentional. You know, then the other quote is from Steve Biko, as far as the greatest weapon in the hands of the oppressors, the mind of the oppressed. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, as you said, without other folks even having to be in close proximity to us over these generations, like they've gotten into our minds so deep that we're passing it on to each other. Well, you know, it reminds me of, you know, the miseducation of the Negro and what Carter G. Woodson sort of said, you know, about the door, because we've been so miseducated that we get to a certain point that we just sort of almost like willingly participate in our own oppression. Mm -hmm. it's, it's funny. There's sort of a running joke that I've seen people have where when you're talking to black people and you're sort of asking them what's going on or like, why are things the way that they are? And they'll jokingly say it's racism. It's racism. Like, it's like, you know, whatever, whatever the question is, the answer is it's, it's racism. Well, that's done in jest, but in all seriousness, white supremacy is so pernicious, it is so pervasive that I feel comfortable in saying that it is responsible for virtually every ill that we see within our communities. And you may not be able to directly see and understand the connection, but it's there. I want to talk about where do we go from here in terms of healing? Like what kind of work or research have you done or seen or what's being done as far as understanding how we can heal from this trauma we've been through as it relates to white supremacy really infiltrating our minds and our culture and value systems? I fundamentally believe that any efforts at healing fundamentally have to sort of involve a re-embracing or an embracing of our identity as African people. I, and I'll, I'll give you a very concrete example. So years ago, um, are, are you familiar with the movie Sankofa? I have not seen it. I've heard about it, though. So so Sankofa was a movie made by an Ethiopian filmmaker named Hale Garima. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was a professor at Howard University for many years. When he came to this country from Ethiopia and he wanted to pursue film, it was in America that he learned about the experience of the enslavement of African people. So growing up in Ethiopia and his Ethiopian education, he didn't know anything about slavery. And so when he got to the United States, he learned about slavery. And it was so impactful for him. It made such an impression on him that he made this movie called Sankofa. And Sankofa is a brilliant movie. It portrays this woman, Mona, her, her American slave name, if you will, is Mona. Her African name was Shola. And it takes us into a journey where she's in Ghana. She's at one of the dungeons where they ha held enslaved Africans. And she walks into it and, and she doesn't have an appreciation or she doesn't really respect that she is on hollowed ground, that she is on the ground where the blood of our ancestors have been spilled. And so she's very cavalier. She's there. She's she's being photographed and she's like a model. And so she's being in many ways sort of disrespectful of that hollowed ground. And so she walks into one of the dungeons and suddenly she is overcome with emotion and visions of she can see these chain enslaved Africans. And so the what the movie does, it takes place where we see through her eyes as an enslaved African Shola, what it was like to be an enslaved African. And so it takes us through her own sort of psychological journey of growth into sort of really embracing who she was as an African person. And I, I share that with you because when the film came out maybe 20 years ago or so, I was at the Association of Black Psychologists annual convention. 
and there was a lot of buzz because we had heard so much about this film and and we were like, we need to see this because we need this to start the process of healing. And so a, a bunch of black psychologists got together. I think it was in Los Angeles, if I remember correctly. And we watched this film together. So if you think about the, the impact that Roots had, and, and Roots, it's important historically. There are some problems with it in terms of who it privileged in terms of the voice and perspective. But nevertheless, it occupies a very important part of our history. Well, Sankofa, for, for many of us, was a corrective to what Roots should have been because it was from the perspective of the African people, not from the perspective of white people. And so we watched Sankofa together as a, as a group of black psychologists and then we went through a healing ceremony because it was so emotional. It brought up so much emotion within us in terms of just processing what we had watched and processing what our ancestors had gone through. And so we went through a healing ceremony. And, and I have, this is probably a pipe dream. You know, it's not that all of our people are going to get together and watch Sankofa and then go through a collective healing. But I but I, I think it's it's more symbolic for me because symbolically what it, what it sort of communicates is that Black people, if we're going to heal as a people and if we're going to sort of, you know, not be killed by the ravages of sort of white supremacy, we first and foremost have to see and understand and recognize recognize ourselves to be African people. Because by doing that, it connects us to culture, it connects us to ancestry, it connects us to to land, it connects us to history, and it connects us to those folks who may not be here physically with us, but who occupy different spaces, both physically and spiritually. And so I truly believe that any sort of healing that is going to take place amongst our people has to start with the the acknowledgement and recognition of who we are as a people. The word Sankofa, if I might say, you know, say is an Akan word, and it means to go back and fetch what was lost before you can go forward. And so I think it's an appropriate word to sort of use here because basically what it says is if we're going to heal, if we're going to move forward in the future, we first have to go back to our history and reclaim our history, which includes reclaiming our identity as African people. That has to happen before we can then sort of move forward and heal. And so I know that might sound utopian-ish, if that's a word uh, or whatever, but I, I truly believe that, that that has to happen for, for our people. All right, all right. So just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. You know, at Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Escadar Getahoon, Leslie Taylor Grover, Abney Jones, Aquia Tay, Darren Wallace, and our producer, Sidney Smith.
For Lemon House, our producers are Jessica Rue France and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the podcast. Black History Year's executive producers are Julian Walker for Push Black and Michael L. Sesser for Lemon House. I'm Jay for Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace. <laughs>